Welcome to Dear Gardener. I'm your host, Ben Dark, a journalist, writer and head gardener without a garden, head gardener in exile across the waters in Denmark. But that doesn't much matter, because this program is not about me. This program is about the Dear Gardeners, a different group of whom feature each week, weaving together the stories of their plants, their gardens, their loves, hates, prejudices, irrational superstitions and anything else they want to throw at a microphone. Not that there's much of that sort of stuff today. This was an episode in which I learned something from every single one of the chats. If you like me asking, what's that? I don't, I don't know what that is. Then this is an episode for you. We're heading off to a beautiful sounding garden between the Great Lakes and the Appalachian Mountain Range, a real plants person's garden. We're going to a bluff high above the Minnesota River Valley and to an apartment above the tree-lined streets of Buenos Aires. One of these conversations has been chopped in half a little bit. When I talked to Julie, we covered so much ground, and she had covered so much ground in her garden with plants that she was able to brilliantly talk about that there was just no way to fit it into one episode. So the second part of our conversation will be appearing in a few weeks' time. We make it as far as beginning to tease the idea of talking about her kitchen garden and then cut off on that, that great horticultural cliffhanger. Anyway, a little bit of scene setting before we dive into the gardeners. These are the last few hours of October 2022. We will never get them back. It is Halloween, the clocks have gone back. My neighbours have been setting off dry ice into the cold, murky air, so all around is close and foggy. It's been incredibly mild here this autumn, and this really should be the best weekend for the capital of Denmark's trees. They really are gearing up for their final autumn hurrah. But unfortunately, it is the Danish parliamentary elections tomorrow, so all of the tree trunks are utterly plastered in plastic board signs bearing the, the faces of these political hopefuls. I think there's something like a thousand candidates standing across the country. It's a country with a, a proportional representative parliamentary system. And they're all very, very gorgeous-looking people, but not quite as gorgeous as a full, unmolested autumn tree. So that's bothered me a little bit. I suppose in the interests of fair and open democracy, it's fine for me to lose out on a couple of good viewpoints. But I do feel very sorry for those people who come to, to Copenhagen just to take photos for Instagram, just to show where they've been and now cannot escape some beaming, gorgeous face of the, the social democratic movement staring out from the, the chestnut trunks. As the father of a soon-to-be three-year-old, I'm very happy to report it's a vintage year for leaf-kicking, rustling and generally russeting about. Things are falling straight from their trees in dry and crackly profusion, not being blown into great selfish heaps and not being turned prematurely into a, a thick mat like the pages of a book pulled from a bog. There's a lot of red-cheeked and wholesome kicking about going on. 
Was it because it's been so still? The leaves are falling where they lie, and you get to see in the well-to-do suburbs which surround me <laughs> the people sweeping punctiliously to the very edge of their boundary on the pavements and leaving their neighbours with an accusatory unswept line of leaves on their section of pavement. All the joys of the season, what fun we are having. But enough of that and enough from me. I'll be back for a little chat at the end. Until then, let's hear from our dear, dear gardeners. Times are getting tough and the folks are cutting down. They even decide to do their own gardening. Their own gardening. Take my advice and knock off for a while. The happiness boys are on a rampage. Fred has helped me to start a small Pelagonian nursery, yes. I know you said not to prepare, but I did prepare. I have some pages, so just to help everything be fresh. So, so I have notes. That's perfect. That's perfect. I think <laughs> I want everyone to be themselves and some people are more prepared and that's great. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> Hello, Alicia. How are you? Hi, <laughs> We made it. Yeah, thank you so much. No, you're welcome. I'm about to have breakfast. I'm sorry. I haven't spoken in English for a long time. Your English sounds absolutely brilliant. Okay. <laughs> do you bother if I do some no. stuff? Okay. okay. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Eating water for, for mate. Oh, great. You're having mate. Perfect. Hello, Michael. <laughs> you look a little bit frozen there. Check, 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 check. Can you hear me? I can hear you. I can hear you, Ben. Let me take off my hat. I feel like I'm being rude. Should we talk about the garden? Yes. Yes, welcome to my garden. I garden in a small town in northwestern Pennsylvania with rolling hills, but not too rolling. So we are between two major geological features. So the Great Lakes and the Appalachian mountain range. So our land was a bit flattened by the glacier that would have come down from what is now Lake Erie. And so we have many wetlands around us, which is why the birds are so happy to live here, which is also why my husband is so happy to live here because he's a bird watcher. Oh, really? What type? Is he a checklist or just a, an interested at the weekend kind of bird watcher? He has a checklist. Yeah, he has several checklists. And he actually got to do bird banding with his father when he was growing up. So the serious in the field measuring how much does this tiny little fluffy thing weigh? How many has he got in your garden? So many. It's actually a joke that the rarest of birds that he actually grew up in the woods, the just vast wooded area up in northern Pennsylvania. And he and his father tracked for an entire day the largest woodpecker of North America, the pileated woodpecker. They tracked it because they could hear it calling through the woods and he never saw it. But in this little town in, in, in northwestern Pennsylvania we live in, 
he and I, when we were in college, we were just taking a walk down the down the little town street, and suddenly there was a pileated woodpecker on a telephone pole right there, you know, eating bugs. He just always throws his head back and says, of course, of course, we see these things. So we have sandhill cranes that fly over us. We just had the pileated woodpecker in our garden uh, more than once this week. I tried to count our nesting birds one year, and it was well over 20 for sure. We knew we're nesting here. The Carolina wrens are just these chitterly little birds. They remind me of chipmunks. We also have hummingbirds, the ruby-throated hummingbird, and they nest. So, what's up? How are you doing? I'm doing very, very well. I'm just enjoying flitting around the world talking to people. I don't know if I'm fit for what you're looking for, but maybe I can even put you in contact with someone who is more no. or otherwise you will you will be fit for it because i'm just looking for people who are interested in gardens and if okay. you have an interest in gardens and plants yes I we... <laughs> but well i i i'm studying so i i i take courses are you studying horticulture more like gardening actually it's gardening the the name is Tecnicatura en jardinería, we could be like technician in gardening. We share many courses with people who are teach, learning how to produce uh, things you can eat in a very in an organic way. But it's going to be closed. They are closing the career because no one is going there because no one is, is interesting, apparently. I don't what? know why. Because there's not money in it? I think there's not so much money in anything in the country. <laughs> This was built in 1997, and right when we were looking to move out of our tiny little townhouse, and it was right at the bottom of that huge real estate collapse we had here. And so we, we made a ridiculously low offer and told them, we're not offering you this much money because we're trying to play hardball. This is all we have. And so we told them, we said, we have no negotiating power. So you can come <laughs> back with whatever you want. And amazingly enough, they took it. And Ben, it is in the woods. We're up on a bluff above the Minnesota River Valley, which is the distinction of one of the only river in the States that flows north because of glacial activity. So we're inside of an oak, mostly pin oak forest, mostly pin oak woods, above a 40-foot ravine on 10 and a half acres, which has given us all kinds of opportunity, but also provides all of our gardening challenges. <laughs> of course. So your garden just blends into those pin oaks. That's what we're trying to do. And out the back, we have a ravine. The edge of the ravine is just a mere 30 feet off the back foundation. And then that's where our primary border is. And we have all kinds of struggle trying to figure out how to, how to create a look that looks right. You know, normally what you would do is you would start low, build up, and then maybe even to your fence or your, to your hedge. And, and then you'd have the trees dropping down, but we've got this tremendous view down this valley. So we don't know quite how to aesthetically navigate that, that layering up and then knowing that it's just going to drop off into this ravine so and you on the other side of the ravine you just see pin oaks stretching out into the distance 
if you look directly out the house, you look across the ravine, which is again, more pin oaks and then fields behind it. So in the winter, when the leaves drop, we can see through, even though it's a good 200 yards, we can see through to the fields. But then if you look more south, southeast, we look directly down a ravine where you have the classic hills arcing down. And that's the view. In fact, in episode one, I could not believe you guys brought up the idea of an obstructed view. And I about fell out of my chair. I have one of my favorite books was written in the 70s by this team of architects. It's called A Pattern Language. And it's this obscure, densely text, self-referential book that goes from global scale all the way down to individual placement of objects in rooms. Along that path, you go through the gardens. And one of the patterns is I think they actually call it a Zen view, which is hilarious looking back culturally now. But it's the idea that uh, that an obstructed view has more romance and intrigue than just a wide open view. I will say that we still fight the urge just to have a tremendously wide open view. <laughs> so when I started this garden, I wanted to build something that was full of interesting contrasts and a journey kind of obsessed with the idea of a journey, not in the kind of artistic symbolic way, but as more, you know, that I want to pass through the garden. I want to walk through the plants and experience them and have them mob me when I come around the corner and they're wet and, you know, all that, <laughs> all that close relationship with the plants. So a garden you can be in rather than just look at or just walk around or by, which is the typical, definitely the typical kind of garden in Pennsylvania, you know, where I live. So it's unusual. This is our second garden after making a smaller town garden, little postage stamp. But both of these gardens I've made as the fruit of the deep mulching of my brain in Christopher Lloyd's and Beth Shadow's writing over the years. It's just that total immersion in plants that was an important goal to me, as well as using them to direct your eye through the garden. Our garden is also the setting for our life as a family. We have three children who are now in teen years, and they've grown up in home education. So being surrounded by the garden has been a really important part of their education. I became interested in native flora. It's like we, we are growing gardens and we are investing in money and resources and water and soil and many things in, in building gardens. And sometimes those gardens that we build are even harmful for the nature. I tried to learn uh, why are we are not using the plants that are from here. Many times it's because we don't know them. We don't know the ability of, of them for being ornamental. We are a colonized colonization also. We grow with gardens inspired in Italian gardens and Spanish gardens because that's mostly what the grandmothers and grandfathers uh, knew when they came here. And we learned that those were beautiful gardens and we try to replicate them and we have like very European gardens with roses, such pain to grow because here it is humid and the soil is not up. But we have many, many other things. As we didn't knew, we just 
take them for like, okay, this is, this is something, malesta, <laughs> something you need to, bad, bad grass, bad grass, bad grass is malesta. <laughs> but why? This is beautiful. And maybe you can eat them and maybe you can make tea with them and all the knowledge of what you can do with the plants that grow here, not only on Ramanta, but also to eat. It's lost because no one <laughs> look at them. They just, okay, I have to clean this space of these plants that are growing here and put, I don't know, bougainvillea <laughs> because that, that's what is beautiful and grass. Could, could you tell me the name of the book again? Because I'll put it in the, in the notes under the podcast. The name of the book is called A Pattern Language and it is sitting 30 feet to my right and I'm just going to run over and get it so I can get yeah, it exactly okay. right for you. Okay. All right. And there it is. A pattern language. You could build a house out of that in itself, couldn't you? It's a My brick. My goodness. And you, when you say that, I know that you're not being anything but completely accurate because it's short and stubby. Let me flip it open so you can see how dense and tiny the writing is. Wow. Every, every pattern is given a number and then every design theory or pattern then references every other pattern in the book to which that pattern draws on. It is a choose, well, it's not choose your own adventure, but it has that quality where it's so densely self-referential. I actually got it um, because I was the style of Sakia Japanese gardens and it kept coming up on their referential list. And if you are interested in gardening, it's appropriate. If you are interested in city design, it's appropriate. If you are interested in interior design, it is appropriate. It's just an insane work. Okay, that's that's a high recommendation. I'm going to look out for that. Is that is that related to your your background? Are you involved in architecture? My background is very wild and varied. So, I started in engineering school. I love architecture. I went 4 years did not finish, went and finished in biology with an emphasis in botany and a minor in chemistry. And that's where all these things start to, started to dovetail together, having a little bit of formal training in botany, just enough to know that the science was fascinating. And, you know, the alternation of generations, life cycles of a plant just put me on my, on my heels. I, I couldn't believe that a, a a plant could do that. And then I was young and I saw Penn and Teller who are uh, magicians here in the States. And I was, I guess I was 22 and I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. And I thought, I just want to do that. And so then I started working as a magician and I have worked as a magician for almost 25 years now. Okay. That explains your Instagram handle. I wondered yeah. why I could see, cause I thought the productions referred to your brilliant paintings that I've seen, but the sneaky yeah. productions is the sneaky magic. I understand now. The pandemic forced me to paint. Uh, I've always liked painting, but I didn't know that it would be marketable and that people would react in a way that they would want to purchase my paintings. And I quite honestly, I, I don't quite know what to do right now. I don't know where to put my time. Um, I don't know what to do. <laughs> That's the garden maker side of you. I'd like to hear the story of the creation of your garden because you have obviously these painterly instincts, but also a desire to research and take the engineer's approach with your thick brickish books. So 1997, you moved into the house. It was built in 97 and we moved out the last day of July in 2012. 
And the development of the garden first was discovery. And when I, I, and I don't use that word casually, it had essentially sat for almost four years. And so our first task was to begin to find what we had. And I remember Erin, my wife, was weeding or thought she was simply removing weeds and debris out left of the drive. And she called me over and found a small rock wall. And then suddenly we're realizing that within all of these tall grasses that were beginning to reclaim the area or had reclaimed the area, we were finding perennials. I had a boyfriend who had a house. I'm, I live in Buenos Aires for many years. I'm not from here. And he lived far away in a place that he had a, a courtyard and he was trying to grow things there to cover the, the sides and, and stuff. And he failed because he didn't knew and he used things that didn't work there. So I was trying to learn what we could do and what we could grow there. That was a first experience for me because as living in the city, I always grew things in pots and that's what I knew. And I was uh, trying to learn species we can grow, but then I my relationship ended. So all that garden is there. <laughs> And I get to see like two or three times a year. That's a little bit sad. So I'm reconfiguring myself. So right now I continue studying very, very slowly because I have other jobs. I'm a lawyer. <laughs> and so I have, uh, don't have all the time. What I'm doing in gathering right now, I'm trying to design a, a terrace for a client. And I'm trying to convince, convince him that is very, very stubborn. Uh, <laughs> it's very stubborn to, to use uh, plants that are from here. He wants like a very geometrical and structured garden. That is like what I do not do. <laughs> and he has an idea of what he thinks he likes. But in, and it's a very beautiful terrace. And I think that I, I'm trying, I'm saying a lot to see what I can do with the plants I like to make him like them. Our neighborhood is a kind of museum for large, expansive lawns. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when we began letting the autumn leaves lie on the woodland floor, there were some distinct frowns from the really? passersby. Yes, in fact, I, there's just one instance kind of burned into my brain that one of our elderly neighbors walked her Yorkshire Terrier by and she noted pointedly, so you like the wild look. By wild, she meant a place full of baby shrubs and new little garden beds and leaf litter everywhere. I'm always interested in the effects that gardens have on those that surround them. Do you see your influence being repeated, echoed in your neighbor's planting? I do, for sure. In fact, even more significantly in our first garden, because we had just a little, just a little corner and we started planting our curb strips. We started putting up small trees everywhere and shrubs. And so any passerby could walk down in the sidewalk through that garden. And so over there, the neighbors on all the other corners all of a sudden started popping up and coming over and saying, can I have some of that stuff that's growing there? You know, <laughs> can I get a begging off plants and I'm handing them sedum and I'm handing them, you know, geraniums and extra bits. And 
they started planting, but this is, this is a bigger lot. It's three quarters of an acre. It's a little bit more affluent of an area. And I've had a much harder time breaking into the hearts of <laughs> the lawn loving neighbors because it's very hard for them to, to see that sacred <laughs> monument scarred, these lawns that they love so much. And I think it gives them safety and security and an easy maintenance pattern because all you do is pay someone to mow your lawn. But we're over here and we're making a mess and, and it's an unapologetic mess because I have dirt piles and I have wood piles and I have gravel piles. And I, I know for sure that some of them are thinking, when is it going to stop? We are finding spirea bushes that you couldn't tell they were spirea anymore, but they were in there. I like to round them low and oblong. They call it a tomono style in Japan. Okay, right. I'm going to be taught about Japanese gardening by you, Michael, because you know a lot more about it than I do. They describe the look as if you took a very soft ball of dough and rounded it, and then you dropped it, and the way it would hit, and it would round into an oblong, but then you get a little bit more tighter rounding underneath. Ideally, they do that look with boxwoods very successfully. I find boxwoods to be very hard to find, any bigger than a gallon size, and they grow so slowly. I don't have the patience to wait 10 years to get a big, beautiful tamamono shrub in a boxwood. So I do find the spirea, even though I have to stay on top of them a bit more, it's a way for me to access that gardening style very quickly. Are the leaves fine enough to, to create that effect? The leaves are fine enough. I wish they were tighter. The other issue is that they, they bloom and the rule of the house is I can't give them their shaping until they're done blooming. So there's there's a period in the spring and early summer every year where they're still in bloom and I want to shape them, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not allowed until the flowers are done. I suspect <laughs> that if I were to get in there earlier and not allow them to bloom in, in dignity and, and let them run their course, I do suspect that I would get a little bit of a tightening of the leaves. But they're also very fragile. It's a curse and a blessing. So we're zone 4, 4B technically here in southern Minnesota. And so they can get crushed, but they grow, they grow robustly enough. They will spring back. And usually you really only lose one season of them being very good looking that way. Um, but then, no, you're right, Ben. They, they, the leaves, although the leaves are tiny, they're not close enough together like a boxwood where you really get a, a shape. Now, that said, that's really only when you walk up on them, kind of like a painting. You stare at a painting from across the room. You walk up and assume to see this intense level of detail when, in fact, painting almost dissolves in front of your eye. Same thing with doing this shearing style with a, a spirea is that when you look at them from a distance, and by a distance, I mean even just 15 paces, you really feel that mass. And the light, if you were to take a picture of it, you get the rendering of the highlight off the one edge and the shadow underneath. It's only when you walk up on it that it dissolves and your your surface is much more porous than, than you get the sense as you're looking across at it. Yeah, exactly as if you had stuck your nose to the canvas and exactly. seen all the, the strips. We started the garden eight years ago this spring. So it's been a process, but three quarters of an acre, it's a good size. When we arrived, we inherited about a dozen mature trees, just beautiful, majestic 
oaks and beaches and American linden tree and a short stack stone wall. And the topsoil was very thin everywhere because for decades, almost a century, the leaf litter had been religiously removed, blown away, you know, with those wonderful blowers. And, and so the first task we took on was to amend the soil with as much compost as we could get our hands on and to add the leaf, the leaves every autumn on top of it. And oak leaves do take a while to break down. And a lot of the shady bits were really just starting to get that soil built up, still setting the scene for all those woodland treasures that I love. So, but, so when you look down from the top, you can see our garden is roughly cut in two halves. So there's a sunny spaces around the house on the east side. And then the shady spaces are under all those large trees on the western side. So if you walk around the house in the sunny side, you'll see the entry circle gardens, which I'm, I'm just building now. And then the cottage garden out kind of in front of the house between the our brown brick house in the street. And then a birch walk and a parterre, a box parterre, a fruit tunnel, a small garden pond, and a large play lawn, then a sloped ruin garden, which was where we had to have a garage removed last year that was falling over, a damp prairie border, and then a kitchen garden. <laughs> so it's quite the journey around the house. And then in the shady half under the old oaks, we have a daffodil dell because my husband loves to collect daffodils and they're tucked in below a stone wall a, a short stone wall and then we have a saint francis garden who's patron saint of ecology and we have a box lined moss path and a whole lot of shrubby bits and in, in walks around and we've been working to hedge that side of the of the garden in with rhododendron and white pine, a native hemlock, Canadian hemlock, to give it some privacy because that is the part that goes up against the street corner. How gorgeous. <laughs> I love I love the sound of those. They're such evocative names you have for them as well. I can't call it a birch walk and not, not be a place of great beauty. Yep. That's fantastic. The <laughs> birch walk is really probably my favorite of every spot, you know, when I need to run for refuge which one occasionally does when you're home homeschooling will run to that bench uh in the bottom of the birch walk which is a an informal area and underneath there's a perennial meadow so the, the moon daisies and the shasta daisies and there's you know early bulbs all the snowdrops are in there so the white white and green a white and green moment in the midst of all that's going on around here. So. Gorgeous. I was picturing something a bit more shaded, like the nuttery at Sissinghurst or something a bit more covered and things like that. But actually that sounds lovely. I, well, it does feel that way because the neighbor has just a gargantuan um, white oak tree that is right over top of it. It's a shady spot on the sunny side of the house because of the neighbor's tree. And so the birch are coming up underneath so it it does I would really be flattering myself to say it was just like the nut walk but it, it has that kind of a green and white feel to it and the tackled you know the light coming through and and the magic of spring and right now it 
it, you know, of course it, it's filling with all the white asters are just starting to come out. So that sounds glorious. Yeah, it's my favorite place to sit. If I was to build this, build my house, I would set the windows very low and have every window, every garden space around the, the house would be designed to be viewed from inside first and then from outside second. The home is has a pretty substantial footprint and we have quite a large number of windows facing in all directions. And there was exactly one window that I could design from looking out into the garden. And that is where I chose to put the Japanese garden. And when I say the Japanese garden specifically, and I'm, I'm not an expert by any means, I'm completely self-taught an absolute amateur uh, in the truest sense of the word, but they, the Sakia style of gardening, the Sakia residential style that was being executed during the samurai period, their homes, I believe that the Western designers even largely borrowed the idea of having the garden and the home boundaries interlace and blur comes from that period style. So I did pick one window. Unfortunately, that window uh, has a classic Midwestern porch uh, in between it and the garden, but it was the window. It was the window I was allowed. And so I did lay out my small Japanese garden. And they should be small. That's the other hallmark of the design is that some of the gardens are as small as three meters by three meters. They're just, they just tuck these beautiful, intricate little design sculptures, really living sculptures into the tiniest of places. They're called pocket gardens. Um, Suboniwa is, I do, I am confident with that word. Uh, so they're pocket gardens. And so I have put a pocket garden outside what we call our music room. And unfortunately, it's a tall, narrow window, but you look out and the primary tree is a crab apple. And then I have some raked gravel below it and the properly spaced stepping stones, zigzag stone. And then it leads to a wooden gate, just a, a wooden archway with a small shelter roof. And then that uses two step stones, two big stepping stones off into the woodland. And so that garden is the one that is laid out to be viewed from the inside. Everything else is a strolling garden. That's glorious. I love the sound of that. And is the crab apple, is it is it pruned to keep it to to the size of the pocket or is it quite a small cultivar anyway? It's mid-sized and I need to correct myself. I've learned it's actually a hawthorn. I thought it was a crab apple and it's a hawthorn. And so we had a, a woman here at the house who was a professional gardener and she was walking and talking about some of the things we could do to improve on. And she pointed out it was a hawthorn. And uh, one of the giveaways should have been that every fall it dusts the entire side of the house with a rust colored pollen. And if I would have had my choice, I would have chosen a different specimen, but it's there. And to answer your question, yes, I work very hard to... I, very, I work very hard every year to keep the, the sapping shoots out and then I layer so that you have pads of foliage with some space. The, the way that they describe the technique is, well, so you, you start with the, the real basic rules, crossing branches are a no, descending branches are a no, and all of that sort of just basic work. And then once you get to that, aesthetically, what you're hoping to do is to create pads of foliage that are, you're looking at them, and if you were to draw a shape around them, you would see an isosceles triangle with the, it should be the bottom 
of the triangles kind of dripping down to the ground. So every every little pad should have a little bit of a triangular shape and every triangular shape should reinforce the tr larger triangular shape. And then you try to imagine as far as spacing rules are concerned, you ask yourself, could a little bird, could a chickadee fly in, into that spot and then easily land and then move on? And, and amazingly, that's that's an actually described technique is, is to think about whether or not a chickadee could make its way uh, relatively easily fly and land on a branch and then and sit there and then move on. He has like an idea of, of having like a Japanese geometrical garden, but modern, but not. And it's like, okay. <laughs> also, the thing is with native plants that you don't have the expertise yet because it's something quite new. So maybe the plants are not like always so beautiful or so organized and you 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 have one plant that is in a, in a certain shape shape and the other is not in that shape so well it's a very expensive and labor intensive process for a nursery to grow yeah. an ornamental yeah. taperized tree like you say it takes so many so much time because one year you grow the seed and the other and you shake the tree so it takes a lot of time a lot of knowledge so it's hard to find big 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 plants that has many years and and you don't have like okay i have thousands of trees and i choose the better one that's not happening with those kinds of plants the plants we mostly find that are from here the in the in the big shops or in the growers are like plants that you took like cortaderas, uh, verbena, bonariensis, salvia guaranitica, those plants because you took them, you learned how to grow them and make them beautiful. So we have many many shades uh, of of salvia guaranitica, and now we took them from you. So that's something we have to learn to do, but by ourselves. But uh, <laughs> Uh, it, it's like, wow, if you are, are doing it and you could discover and, and take those plants from nature and make them garden beautiful, that's something that can be done. And it's certainly a way of contributing to nature, the space, and also helping, uh, I don't know, animals, birds, insects, get have some refugees in cities. When we came here in spring of was 2014, we found that because it's difficult to mow and clear leaves around that short stone wall, all around the rocky edges of it burst forth hundreds of large white trillium blooms, which is one of our native trillium, trillium grandiflorum. They're just all over. We have we have dozens and dozens. And then there were also the sky blue, Virginia blue bells, which is another native Mertensia virginica. One day I was sitting actually on just perched precariously on the stone wall. And as I was sitting there in the spring, the hummingbirds showed up and they were actually sipping from the Virginia blue bells. They, they, they're said to follow the flowering of our native Equilesia columbine. It's a red and, and yellow columbine that flowers. And as it flowers, the hummingbirds follow. But that day I found out that they like the little blue trumpet 
of the Virginia Bluebell as well, you know, just because they were just sipping out of those as I sat there just frozen and the May light was coming through the tree. So it was a magic moment. They're magical birds. This is why gardens are such special places because we put down layers of little memories and experiences and no doubt your garden would be absolutely stuffed full of trilliums but that first <laughs> spring seeing them come up that memory will stay just as fresh. We also inherited a large patch of bluet, Houstonia carulia I think, but they were dancing you know, in the breeze in May, and they prefer that stripped, you know, kind of what we were saying before the glacier, you know, strip of the very poor environment, that mossy slope that is under those trees, because it just, you know, runs down to the street and the bluets were just growing everywhere, you know, in big patches. I don't know what a bluet is. I love the, <laughs> I love the name. Houstonia. They are actually also called quaking ladies because they, they shake and shimmer in the breeze. So a very pale shade of periwinkle with a Beautiful. white center. And their leaves are just tiny little dewdrop size on, you know, on the moss. And so you just get a tiny little carpet of <laughs> almost like little rice grains. And then you get these flowers that stand up on these thread like stems, you know, about three inches high, and they just wave and quake in the breeze. Gorgeous. <laughs> yes, it actually, it's so that's one of the places where I have figured out that it suffers if I let the leaves accumulate there. It's just a good lesson where, you know, as a gardener, I come into this place and I think, what were these people doing? They they took away all the organic matter. We can't grow a thing here. And then nature finds a way to make these you know this amazing carpet of flowers that grows it's a good lesson in humility to remember that nature makes a way what are the street trees of buenos aires i always think of it as quite a green city with quite a few varieties a very, of trees a, it has been a very a very green city we have people who are interested in trees are having issues with the government because uh, they make it um, a business of taking them or some they are they are cutting and maybe not in the right times and not in the in the right way so the trees get sick and they they have to replace it because they are selling the trees to the city in a, in a in a very expensive price so we have, uh, yes, many trees, many big trees that are not being very well taken care of, but we have great landscapes in the past, in the last centuries, um, that, that it was, uh, um, I don't have the name right now, I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot, but he was a great landscapist and he chose uh, many trees, not from Buenos Aires, but from the, the the forests in, in the north of Argentina. So we have like pipas that uh, they get then the city gets yellow in November, and we have jacarandas, and the city gets yellow in, in October, and we have palos borrachos, so the city gets all pink and shady in February. I love that. The, the drunken trees. Yes, yes. Very, very beautiful. So they are huge. That's very beautiful. Mostly all of the streets have trees. So that's nice. 
but also many of the trees are not suitable for streets because maybe they are too big, the roots or, or the trunk, and they are, so maybe the neighbors don't like the trees because they are shading their house or taking the soil up or, or uh, I don't know, blocking their, the window of their shops. So many times the, the neighbors kill the trees. Uh, sometimes you have uh, trees that, and we have many fresnos, I don't know the name. It's a tree that's not from here and it's very um, uh, invasive. See, uh, so that's a problem because uh, Fraxinus. Fraxinus. Oh, okay, with, ash. Yes. Well, most of the streets have uh, that kind of, of tree. It invades reservations and nature sites. So that's quite a problem. Maybe one day you will have the only Fraxinus left because over here in Europe, they're all dying. They're catching a fungal disease called ash dieback. And they're a huge part of our forests over here and they're all dying out. So you can look after them. It'll be like with the Carmineri grape where it dies out in Europe and remains down with you guys. The grapes are dying in Europe. When there was the big vineyard blight and we lost a load of varieties in Europe, in yes. South America, they didn't say so that the Carmineri grape only survived down there. Well, maybe we, get, we are saving the, the Fraxinus for, for you. What happened to the Fraxinus? That really a fungus is killing them. Yeah, it's called ash dieback. And it just, it takes several years to do it. And they're just dying at the top falling apart basically it's it's really sad i think it's one of these situations where it probably was on a very minor group of fraxinus trees in some isolated valley somewhere and mm -hmm. then due to increased transport and things it's been introduced to a population that haven't evolved to have a resistance to it and it's just racing through at the moment killing them off but anyway I know where to come now when they've all gone. Yes, no, don't worry. We have we have plenty of uh, of vaccines here, and they are in very good health in my street right outside of my house. I, I'm going out a lot because I have a dog. There was a tree that was broken that like, like, she died, and they planted a new vaccines. It was very very small, and I don't know. I think the owner of the house doesn't like the vaccines. So it, become, it, it gets broken many times. So I see it's like a very, very thin, even broken. You can see now that it's, there are small uh, um, leaves growing there. So it grows. The fraxinus, uh, the fraxinus grow. <laughs> Don't worry, it grows. I used to pick up plants from the street to try to, to grow them. And I, once I saw a garden that was torn apart to the sidewalk and I came home with all the, the bags of uh, soil because I used them and that. And there was like a stick like that with maybe not, not roots, dry, dry. It was middle of January, it's very hot here, dry, dry. Like, so I put them in, in, a, in a pot and forgot about it and maybe water it from time to time. It grew and it was a vaccinus. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It's a very strong tree and I think it will learn to overcome the fungus. I love thinking of you there with your 10 acres of wilderness and canyons 
and Pin Oak Forest <laughs> and this incredibly intensive tiny pocket of gardening going on outside the window. Most people in your situation would be looking for ways to just fill space with little effort. That's very funny. I hadn't thought of that. And it's true. Although I will say getting to work in the Japanese garden is largely my self-imposed reward for staying on top of all of the rest of it. So I, I don't spend quite as much time. I don't spend all my time in there. And there's times when it goes more ragged than it should. And then the other major rule of the gardening style is daily maintenance. In fact, some would argue that's the primary rule. And that's the rule I break all the time. I really give it a, I give it a nip and a tuck probably seven times a season. Oh, and I should mention that garden. What makes it very unique is that the floor of it is moss. And there's a lot of discussion in the gardening journal, the Japanese gardening journals on how to cultivate and propagate moss. And I'm I'm proud to say, I just think they're all wrong. I've tried all the things that they talk about, uh, which include taking some moss and blending up in a blender and adding milk and making yeah, a paste. Co coating and, and yogurt and yes, all of that. Oh, nonsense. <laughs> I hate to say it, but it's nonsense. Just make sure that you have some very poorly maintained hard soil around your, wherever you hope to have the garden or look for where the moss is growing in your area and just begin to weed it, just weed it. And it grows and it spreads. I've transplanted moss from as far as away as almost 40 miles and that moss will die. Every bit of moss that I have just found it close to the house, weeded it for a couple of seasons, anytime after a good couple of days of rain, you can take a, a, a scoop shovel and just scoop huge rectangular chunks of it and move it to the other to the other spot and lay it right down on the hard dirt and step on it with your feet and it does wonderfully maybe owning a green shop would be more like okay middle class something you could do but taking care of plants that's not no no that's that's like no i couldn't even imagine that so when i finished high school i'm 41 I didn't even thought about it. I was like, okay, I'm going to study something where I was trying to be a lawyer and stuff. No one, no one thought about it. And no one thought about like, like a, a respectful career. It was nothing like you do when you didn't know how to do anything else. <laughs> when I became interested in plants and I, I realized that I went to a friend's house and started looking, okay, this plants needs to be moved there and you have cochinilla and we have to take it out and you have to, and, and, and I became aware of that. I was doing that for, because I like that a lot. It was like, okay, so there are people who are living from that, <laughs> that they are making a living out of it. This is a, this is a, a job. <laughs> so it was like, Yes, and, and yes, and they are doing that, and they are being paid, and they are maybe well paid, and they are teaching that. That's also a very, very uh, nice uh, show outcome of anything that you can do, and you can do it, but also teach it, and it's very beautiful. During the pandemic, um, we had uh, some plants that we have been growing, and we needed to sell them, and we found a way to make an online shopping, and we sold a lot of plants, and it was like an, a different part of the of the thing. My boyfriend had at the moment he didn't have a shop, so we got we got a permission for 
moving around the city. We aren't enclosed in our homes because we are able to, to go around buying plants and, and, and delivering it. And we brought joy to the people who are like closed in their houses and they were receiving plants. It was nice. What a wonderful way to spend your lockdown. Be out with a, a van full of plants, delivering yes. joy, as you say. Um, yeah, yes, it was very, very beautiful because they were all uh, in their houses and I, I need plants and okay, I have plants. <laughs> but, uh, it was very, very nice. And also the, the growers, they couldn't be able to move their production because the markets were closed. So we went there and find them and it was like, okay, we can do it. We can't do it, but we, we will. And they were, you know, they were flower plants, seasonal flower plants. And they were going to be wasted and we moved them. It was, it was cool. <laughs> so Aaron and I grew up in Eastern Colorado, which is a dry desert. We grew up in the, the part where they call it the high plains and it just gets no water. All the farmland, they, they pump water up from the Ogallala Aquifer, which is this huge underground lake underneath Kansas, Nebraska, and Colorado. And so our parents, gardening was just simply watering the small patch of grass around your yard so that you looked like your house wasn't abandoned. And so we didn't even realize that we, as a couple, loved gardening together intensely. We, we joke around about the fact that one of us, had one of us not liked gardening even as much as we do, it would be obnoxious to have your spouse constantly out in the yard on these beautiful days when you want to be doing other things. But oh, it, it, is, the, it is the greatest bit of luck of our lives that we both, we moved to Missouri, which although culturally was very difficult, uh, it got a lot of rain um, and we had never experienced that. And so suddenly now we're, we're, we're visiting botanical gardens and we're seeing huge swaths of ivy and the power of the daylily. And we worked so hard on our little house and we got it all going and then we moved here and all the plants that we fell in love with just got <laughs> taken from our grasp. And so we've slowly learned what our war horses are, are here. You know, it's a, it's a short list, and by God, lilies of the valley are on that list. They are a workhorse. I love the fact that you you've developed this this love together, and I think it's quite nice that you now have plants that are signposts to certain stages of your life. And when you're driving through Missouri again and you see them, uh, you'll go be transported back to to that little house and you're you're first falling in love with gardening. It's really really nice. I think you're very lucky. Thank you. I've had a wonderful time talking, and I think we're going to get some really nice stuff. For, for people to listen to. It was really fun to see you on the screen. <laughs> uh, someday, someday if I'm over there or you're over there, I'm going to sit across from you uh, with a pint in hand, even if I'm 68 when I do it. That's one of my, one of my goals. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. No, no, well, I'll hold you to that. I'll, I'll put that little bit of audio into the podcast so that it can be on record. <laughs> it was such a pleasure talking to you. And um, then... <laughs> I'd like to drop in and, and hear how things are going. Uh, okay. In a few months' time, if that's all right. Okay, I'll let you know if I finally got the terrace made. <laughs> we have to know. We have to find out. That would be lovely. Okay, well, have a wonderful day, and okay. I'll speak to you soon. So, do you want to hear about the cottage garden? I'd like to hear about the cottage garden. I love cottage gardens, as long as you've got time. I have time. I can talk about my garden for days on end, so yeah. Okay, all right.
dun, dun. There we go. And we must leave Julie. We will be back to hear about the cottage garden in a later episode. What a big thank you I owe to our three gardeners today. Their stories were all individually fascinating. And you get such a sense of them as people from the tales they told. The more I do this programme, the more I enjoy it. The opportunities to drop in on people's lives and just see how wonderfully different and similar we all are. My gardening life has nothing so exciting as, as Michael's Japanese garden, as Julie's Bluets, or as Alicia's plans for a fantastic high-end terrace. But I have been out in the Danish countryside. We went down to Mins Klint, which is the great, gorgeous white sea cliffs, to see the beech woods at the top there and then scurried down onto the fossil-heavy beach to find some little cylinders of ancient, ancient bone. And while there we got trapped by the tide and ended our, our walk with our trousers off and our walking boots strung around our necks, me with the, the toddler on my shoulders progressing around the sea cliffs. All highly dramatic and no reason to involve the, the social services if anyone was, was thinking of these things. Finding a fossil is worth a few wet stockings, as I'm sure the great Mary Anning would have or probably did say once. In personal news, I've been shortlisted for Journalist of the Year, which is very exciting. Journalist of the Gardening Variety of the Year. I'm not, I'm not beating all of those brave war correspondents out in Kiev for or those people exposing the financial and, and moral misdemeanours at the core of our society. But Garden Journalist of the Year, I'll take that, or I'll take the nomination, certainly. If you don't hear any more about that, then you can assume that I didn't win it and let it fade from the, the public consciousness. As always, I urge you to go and read my book. It's really very, very good. It's called The Grove by Ben Dark. A Nature Odyssey in 19 and a half front gardens is the the signed um, is the what do you call it subtitle is the subtitle. If you've already bought two or three copies of that, then you can always say thank you for the time and effort it, it takes to produce these episodes by going along to my Ko-fi page and sticking something in the in the cap on there. There's going to be links to that and to some of the plants talked about today, particularly the ones that Alicia was mentioning that some of us might not be so familiar with. You can find those underneath the description for this episode in all of the places you found this. The most important thing you can do, though, is to tell people about this. Tell them online, tell them in person, tell them to come along and hear stories of gardening around the world on Dear Gardener. So, until next week, adios. I'll see you all back here with another three dear gardeners. Times are getting tough and the folks are cutting down. They even decided to do their own gardening. Their own gardening. Take my advice and knock off for a while. The happiness boys are on a rampage. Fred has helped me to start a small Pelagonian nursery. Yes.